Welcome to Season 1, Episode 17 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Ryan Alexander. Ryan is the man behind the Republic of Bad Taste, and he'll soon be joining the world of podcasting with the Volmania podcast starting next year. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, thanks, Ben. Really uh, flattered to be here. I think uh, humbled by the invitation and you as host and and the previous guests as well. Thanks for coming on. I've been following you for a long time now. How did you get into the world of book Twitter and Bookstagram? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, uh, and thinking back on it now, it was um, really, I had gotten out of grad school and I got a regular nine to, to five job and some coworkers and friends had kind of just suggested um, that, that I look into Instagram specifically. And so I joined there and uh, I, I think decided it discovered book, the hashtag bookstagram. And I think it just kind of seemed like an interesting venue to talk about what I was reading at that point. I was getting um, more serious about reading and fiction. Um, and it, so it started as a place about book reviews, but unfortunately I'm a very slow reader. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I wasn't posting that much, uh, so it became more about, I think, just snapshots of uh, what might be in progress or books in my collection. Um, but I, and then Twitter is a more late development. I had been on Twitter um, for for some time, but I, I think I was driven off by uh, the discourse, so to speak, the, the discourse registered trademark. Um, it, it is an outrage engine, or it can be, uh, particularly if you're, you're centering it around politics and political discussions. So uh, in the upcoming or around, I think it was probably about a year now, um, ahead of the, the presidential election in the US, I thought it might be good to kind of jump back in. I don't remember any particular reason why other than maybe keep abreast of what was going on in conversations. But I think since then, I've found... Um, Twitter and, and Instagram as well to be very affirming, actually, communities, um, particularly if, if you're curating the right sort of network, um, particularly around books and readers. And I think uh, Twitter especially, although maybe it's just it's the bias of being more recent, the, um, the readership there is incredibly strong and, and getting these recommendations and these books that I would have never heard about otherwise. And I'm, I think, uh, I'm making an assumption here, but for you, Ben, it's probably similar in, in terms of sourcing guests and interviewees for the podcast. Um, I think, you know, immediate people that that I saw in, in your guest list, Dustin Eilingworth, among others, he's the one who comes to mind, are people I met through Twitter, and it's it's been amazing. It's a really nice community, the whole book, booktube, bookstagram, book Twitter mm-hmm. community. And yeah, as you said, I've met a lot of fantastic people on there. And it is a place now that I go for recommendations and I go to find what other great readers are reading because that's where people seem to congregate nowadays. It's not really a thing that people do on blogs or or no one reads newspaper articles anymore because reviews suck most of the time. So it's a great place to, to pick up books and meet people. And and I think especially during the, the pandemic and the lockdown, I, I, you know, those were places of... Um, of relief and, and comfort, um, and it, it may sound cheesy to say so, but sort of what may tie into where we're going to move the conversation with um, the group reads and the podcast, really the wellspring of that was in some way traces its way back to uh, social media. I think 
on Instagram, one of the things that I had the most fun doing and, and folks seemed to enjoy was uh, readings that I would do. So I would just go on Instagram live and read from uh, and some one of the books in my collection. I think it started with um, Russell Person's The Way of Florida, which I read in its entirety over the course of uh, a week or so. And then I think moved on through the summer into um, just extracts from books. Very interesting. Can I ask you about your name, Republic of Bad Taste? I think it's one of the, the catchiest <laughs> names around. Thank you. I, I can't take credit for it. Um, it's it's an act of, of thievery. Um, so that is actually the chapter title or the section title from um, the, one of the, the sections within Jonathan Franzen's Purity, which came out around 2015, 2016, and when, right when I was getting back into social media and I was reading the novel, which uh, funny enough, it's it's rather maligned. I think it's considered broadly to be one of the more the, the poor entries in, in the Franzen bibliography, but I, I liked it very much. Um, and and one of the sections is called The Republic of Bad Taste. And it's that particular section centers on Andreas Wolf and um, in East Germany is sort of backstory and, and the broader uh, controversial point among others that Franzen's made that um, uh, he, he argues that the internet, uh, the digital age, social media are totalitarian in the sense that it is nearly impossible for a, an, an average um, citizen, an average person to live their life um, distinct from it. We, we are all in some, to some degree, uh, in conversation with uh, with uh, the internet, with social media, with uh, tech, digital technologies. Um, he's often viewed as a Luddite, but I, I think it's an interesting point. And um, so I, it definitely has a ring to it, um, I think, orally. And uh, to me, uh, living, you know, with with me, my my political sensibilities, seeing what was happening in, in the United States, um, I couldn't think of really, I think that's where it felt like I was living in the Republic of Bad Taste. So it, it, it's a handle and one that I, I think uh, that I'm, I'm happy with. <laughs> <laughs> You're currently running the Tunnel Reading Group with George Sellers. How's that going and how did that get started? Yeah, so that's about to begin tomorrow, although I, and when readers hear this, it'll be in the past. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's happening November 1st through 30th, um, and uh, it's about 22 pages a day. Uh, something I've learned through several group reads is to try to keep it an approachable, spread it out over a long enough period that you can keep the, the daily page, page count approachable. Um, so yeah, we're going to be active on Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads, uh, Discord. We're going to have some video calls uh, informally for just conversation. Um, using the hashtag gas 21. And I, I think George and I have been very appreciative, um, most especially of the support we've seen on Twitter, uh, mainly all, although Instagram as well by uh, Gas's family. So Mary Henderson Gas and Catherine Gas, who have been liking and retweeting and sort of that sort of tacit support for what we're doing. I think they're very happy to see um, their, their, their husband and father's work um, sort of continually continue to be engaged with. I think um, in terms of the backstory, the history, I think I kind of touched on it briefly uh, with the pandemic and lockdown. I think the, the conversation around group reads are, are twofold. I think reading is solitary. You know, it's something that you, you are in in dialogue. You, you are in conversation with the author, in my opinion. 
that's a relationship you build together, but it's a solitary thing. It's an isolating. And then in a time of isolation, that might just be a little too much, a little too compounding. So I think it lends a communal experience. It obviously informs your reading of it, or at least for me hearing what other people think. Um, I'm not someone who trucks much with spoilers. I don't really care. I don't really believe in them. They don't really impact my reading of a book. In fact, I often find that it, um, it enhances my experience because I can kind of test or, or uh, complement my reading, my interpretation, my understanding with those of others. Uh, so it always informs and I think excites me. So those sorts of conversations, I think also um, just it helps make those intimidating works less daunting. This really came about um, through social media, through a series of conversations I was having with George and, and many others um, in 2019 initially uh, around women and men by Joseph McElroy. And, and we did a, a group read of that um, in the early part of the year, January through March. And I think particularly for that book, which is renowned and, and infamous for its difficulty, um, uh, for its inscrutability, I, I think thinking, okay, well, I'm going to do it together. It keeps you accountable, but it also, I think, uh, makes things feel much more uh, approachable. Yeah, with Women and Men, I think that's the kind of book where you do almost need a like peer support to get through it, especially yeah. that last section of it, the last half of it, really. It is, <laughs> it's long and it's daunting, and I'm not sure if the, for me anyway, uh, I think that's something I would much prefer to read with other people because I don't know if the payoff reading it alone was was worth the yeah. effort in a way, especially that. Well, yeah, half. I think I think we'll get to that uh, later in, in our <laughs> conversation uh, based on some of the topics. Uh, I, I think just to to touch briefly on on Gas himself um, and and why we chose the tunnel. I think uh, there's been a long-standing interest, at least on my own part. Uh, for, in William Gass, uh, his demonstrated love of fiction through essays and criticism, I think in particular, uh, for me, his his introduction to William Gaddis's The Recognitions is, is probably, uh, in my opinion, the sort of front matter par excellence. I, I think just the way he he describes that novel is is just unparalleled. Um, as a, as so there's the, as him Gass is a stylist. Um, the lyricism, the melodies of his prose. Uh, I'm reminded of, um, I don't think he coined the term, but it's something that I heard about um, from Garth Greenwell. He referred to the peculiar technology of the sentence. And I think that's something that, that is, um, that gas has mastered. And, uh, and I think he does interesting things with it or exciting things, notable things, disgusting things. He really uses the versatility of, of the language and of the written word. And, and so that's, I think the, the, the biggest um, sort of element of enticement, I think at the level of narrative, um, we're talking about his uh, off-quoted phrase, the, the sort of a, the, the fascism of the heart as he refers to it. So that Campbellian villain with a thousand faces, um, that sense of petty discontent and unsatiated entitlement that I think lies really at the core of the authoritarian personality. Um, John Darneal, the, the novelist and musician, uh, he was talking about the tunnel in a podcast that I heard at one point, and I think he, he phrased it nicely where he said that Kohler, William Friedrich Kohler, the protagonist, spent a lifetime constructing a self in which he would not like to live. 
And uh, I think Gas also mentions that explicitly in the text. Um, there's a sort of recurring catechism. Uh, we have not lived the right life. And I think, you know, we see, that, you know, I, I see it really as around me. I think the continued resonance is, is speaks to its aesthetic. Uh, it's aesthetically commendable, but it's also politically and socially lamentable that it's still resonant. Uh, I think on just a very flippant level, there's, you know, I often think of of these viral videos we're all seeing, whether that's on Twitter, whether it's on our public freakout of impotent rage regarding being asked to put a mask on or disputes on a um, airplane, people yelling at each other. I think we live in a society of of little colers, and um, I think more perniciously and and more uh, frightening to me is you know you see that um, sort of collective commentary. Obviously, it's a book engaging with national socialism and it, I think it probably has some relevance to post-war Soviet authoritarianism um, but you know the present day we see the rise of authoritarian conservative populism in Europe um, and for me in my opinion the openly fascist project of Trumpism and and the GOP in the United States so um, I think it's a book with a lot of resonance, a lot of relevance, and I, I think it is. Um, I hope that that it, it meets my expectations. I suspect that it will. It's such a brilliant novel. It's it's a hard read, I have to say, and I don't mean a hard read because of the the text itself. I think it's a hard read, as in the philosophy that is throughout that book, because it is a dark but strangely funny book. And uh, and in a way, even though the protagonist is so unlikable, you find yourself almost rooting for him. It's uh, it's something that is quite special. I also really love his his late masterpiece, Middle Sea. Yeah, that's another one that I've heard much about, and I think we're already, you know, I think yeah, you you there's so many elements going on there. I think tonal variety. But there's also the experience of reading the text as well. And I, just reading just the first few pages, I, I haven't dived into it properly, but just being cognizant of, of, again, as I mentioned, the sort of the musicality. I think Gas was very much a, um, an intentionally um, styling the prose in such a way, you know, there's the, the rhythm, the cadence, the, the, the rhyming scheme, you know, it's sing songy. There's the, you know, and so I think there is a, a joy to be had in, in probably just reading it. And, and again, that flow of language and, and really reveling in, in the words. Let's move on to Volumania because I'm really excited about this podcast you'll be doing next year. Could you give us a bit of the scoop on the format and the books you're going to cover? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, so as its title suggests, it's, it's a podcast about the books of William Danner Volman. Um, it's hosted by my, or will be hosted by myself and Jordan Rothacker, who's a writer and educator and himself a good friend of Bill's going back to his uh, time as a researcher on carbon ideologies. Um, so we'll be the main contributors, but we're planning on featuring guests. Uh, so I'm sure certain listeners and certain uh, certain uh, members of you have, uh, among your previous guests and invitees can can expect an invitation in the next few months from me. Um, 
the plan right now is because uh, again I'm, I'm learning the processes of, of recording and best practice and hosting and editing all that stuff all, all those nuts and bolts uh, type things this underlying structure I'm learning as I go um, so the plan right now is to launch in February of 2022 um, and each episode will be a structured conversation on one of Bill's books uh, we're going to proceed in sequential order through his bibliography, beginning with an Afghanistan picture show. And the plan as it stands is to release episodes every other month. Um, I did want to take a moment to uh, give a shout out and thanks to Anna Roth, who was a, a friend and a member of uh, several of my group reads this past year, who's allowed us to use uh, her this brilliant artwork that she, she did herself called An Incomplete Map of Volmania. Um, as the official logo of the show. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's on my Instagram, it's on my Twitter. Um, she's a graphic designer, she's an illustrator. And so it, it's using these um, these elements and these, this aesthetic, particularly from the maps that Bill himself drew and included in his Seven Dreams series. So very excited, uh, very thankful for that, as well as um, Ben Shore, who's uh, known as Book Shore on YouTube. These are book booktuber um, has graciously agreed to compose some show music for us. So I think I'm, I'm very thankful for them. And obviously, you know, the question comes up, why a, a podcast about uh, William T. Volman? Um, I think just to give a little bit of a background, he's, he's a, a writer of real, I think, importance to me. And, um, you know, when, when you told me that you had planned on, on giving me the opportunity to talk about the show, I wanted to think talk about this on the show, I wanted to think about why Volman and what he means to me specifically. Um, I think going back to my earliest uh, awareness of him, it was probably through, you know, David Foster Wallace. They were sort of spoken of generally in a limited fashion and sort of that same cohort. I know Wallace felt some, some uh, friendly uh, sort of fraternal jealousy, I think, towards, towards Volman, particularly as regards his, this, the speed of his output. Um, for me, I, I didn't pick Volman up until several, probably two years ago, just before the pandemic, maybe at a local independent bookstore here in Washington, D.C., Solid State Books. I do want to give a shout out to my local independents. Um, I came across a copy of Europe Central and I read just the first few. This is his his great work um, on and won him the National Book Award, if I'm if I recall correctly, on the Second World War and uh, sort of Europe uh, and Europeans between National Socialism and, and Stalinist uh, communism. And uh, I read the first few pages and it's, you just get that feeling that I'm sure we've all had of where have I been? I, I've been asleep. Uh, how have I not read this? It's sort of uh, um, that moment. What is it? Is uh, Daniel Plainview and there will be blood pointing at the map going, why don't I own this? Why didn't I know about this? You know, that's that's sort of feeling. And as I read more, as I picked up more, um, I, I, you know, it's I, what appeals to me is is the scope of his project. I think history, the the masterful synthesis of the historical record, his focus on marginalized voices, on violence, on loneliness. I, you know, on um, I often refer to him as the sort of jokingly as the patron saint of failure. He's he's very much um, captivated by the individual and, and systemic failures. Um, 
his objectivity, but one that is infused with an abiding compassion, um, but is absent or maybe at least just cognizant of its own naivete. Maximalism, of course, um, I think novelty in terms of structure and style. Um, and then just this is a this is obviously a parasocial observation because I don't know the man, but he just he strikes me as a kind person writing about rough times. And um, there's one line in particular from an Afghanistan picture show, which I think is why I'm very happy that it both was the first thing he wrote. So we can include it as the first episode in the podcast, but it's a line of uh, a sentence that's stuck with me. I'll just read it here. It's very brief, but in an Afghanistan picture show, it's a uh, sort of a uh, auto fiction um, report on his time uh, spent in the late 80s uh, attempting to assist traveling to Afghanistan to assist the Mujahideen in their in combat against the Soviets and his, his absolute failure to to contribute in any substantive fashion. So he writes, once upon a time, there was a young man who wanted to be more than he really was. This made him unhappy. And that line is stuck with me. And I think um, either fortunately or unfortunately, I think I probably see a little bit of myself in that sentence. Um, but I think it really speaks to all those things that I spoke about before, particularly with regards to compassion and failure. Um, and then I think in terms of the actual podcast itself, um, and tying back into your question about group reads, I had a, a group read of three of, of the seven dreams over the summer that I jokingly referred to using the hashtag Volmania. Um, and we just finished this, or I just finished it. I was running a bit behind. These are pretty dense books. Um, and I was thinking about how to continue it beyond just this sort of initial group read. And there was some discussions about maybe making it an annual thing and focusing next summer on the, the sex work novels. Um, and I read a tweet um, about somebody just saying, what's going to be the next author-centric podcast? Because uh, Mr. Difficult, you might be aware of, the, the Fran Jonathan Franzen podcast had become kind of a meme because Jonathan Franzen was told about it during a CNN interview and rolled his eyes. It's a great moment if you want to look for it. Um, and and, and my, uh, Mr. Difficult is a great podcast beyond just the sort of meme itself. But um, And then other really notable podcasts, enjoyable podcasts, I think, uh, Our Struggle, which is about Carlo Vekanausgaard, and then I think the the granddaddy of them all, um, the the Concavity Show, formerly known as the Great Concavity, by uh, Dave Laird and Matt Booker, uh, focusing on David Foster Wallace. So I saw this on Twitter, and I had had a few beers, and I kind of just jokingly tweeted, "Well, you know, maybe Volmania will be a podcast, um, and maybe Jordan Rothacker and I and a few others should do that." And it sort of started immediately getting some positive response. Um, and so I'm, I DM Jordan and I just said, hey, let's do this. And he had just so happened to also had a few beers that day. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So it kind of from that joke arose an actual um, an idea and one that I think we're both committed to and excited for and, and really, you know, hoping to, I think both, it gives us an opportunity to talk about a writer we admire and love um, or whose works we admire and love, but also, you know, obviously that, that hope of expanding the readership and you know the question i so often get is um being a really informal um 
uh, and, and novice in terms of, uh, you know, novitiate in the order of William the Blind, we might say. But um, everyone asks me, where do I start with with Bill? And, and you know, there there is many different opinions as there are readers. But my hope is that maybe somebody listens to that, listens to an episode. Hey, that's where I want to start. And that's where they pick up a book. It's funny with Volman because I read Europe Central and enjoyed it. <laughs> And then I kind of got stuck with him a little bit. So I've got quite a few of his books on the shelves, but it is something that I think I'll be listening to your podcast to give me some some more starting points and some more ways to get into him. Because as you said, he is so prolific and his books, they're not thin. <laughs> they're not the kind of things you can read in a weekend. So, yeah. Well, that's why, you know, in, in some ways, um, although I ended up loving it and it's among my fa- it's funny, he, he refers to it as a failure. I think it's a book about failure. Excuse me. It's not a failure. I think there's a distinction there, but you know, I started, I picked up an Afghanistan picture show. I, I be, well, actually the first book of his, I read is the same, uh, comment applies though. I picked up horse for Gloria because it was the shortest. <laughs> it's like 125 pages. I'm like, oh, I can try it, see what I think. I like this guy. Or, I like the cut of his jib, as Larry David might say. And um, so I, I read Horse for Gloria, and then I read Afghanistan Picture Show. And I read You, Bride, and Risen Angels, and that will be a very, or I read about half of it, I should say. Um, so when we get to that episode, I'll, of course, reread it and read it in full. But, you know, that's the thing is with um, someone who's, bibliography is as prodigious you're going to have hits and misses you're going to have books that don't work or that i think more accurately work in part um and with him that's that is in itself is of interest i think to me will you ask bill to be a guest um yeah uh, that that obviously be you know sort of a dream and or a stretch goal if we're going to kind of use these these terms um modern terms uh, I, 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 that, that'll be to be determined. I, I'll have to take the fifth on that one right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Ryan Alexander. Happy cows make the best tasting beef. We make our cows extra tasty by feeding them the highest quality, pure Californian wheat. Check us out at highsteaks.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Ryan Alexander. I know you've got a writing project on the go. Can we speak a little bit about it? Yeah, I think thanks for asking. I think um, and thank you for I think giving me the opportunity to to talk about this because as I mentioned when we were chatting briefly before the show, you know, this is an idea that has been with me for a very long time. It's the place I go when I'm daydreaming in my head, but I don't think I think out of a sense of uh, shyness around with any sort of um, someone who wants to write uh, there's, a, I haven't shared it in, in specifics of this kind with really anyone. So it's exciting and, and daunting. Um, you know, it's a novel in fragments at this point. It's just something I write in. It's, you know, I need to cultivate a discipline about it. Um, but I think right now it's something that I uh, uh, write in, in notebooks in, um, in, on my phone, but it, it is the great pursuit for me, um, I think so far. So it's a novel, it's it's called Come Back Never, which itself is a reference to the Robert Aikman short story, Wood. Um, in terms of plot, 
It's about Henry and Charlotte, a couple who come to harm while visiting a small town and the ramifications of that event. Um, there are dueling suggestions of reality moments in the text where they're both alive, they're both dead. One is dead, the other's alive. Uh, separately from this, there's a, a third sort of nested narrative, uh, deliberately dislocated. I, you know, there's an ambiguity around it that I think interests me and excites me, um, whether it's allegorical, whether it's historical, um, but about a young girl named Mirror Eyes who suffers a similar violent caesura within her life um, as she knows it. Another important thread includes Daniel, who's a childhood friend of Henry's and his attempts to reconcile what's happened to the two people that he loves most in the world um, through the, the lens of his faith um, and, you know, sort of these longstanding uh, conversations around uh, the problem of evil, the best of all possible worlds. There are definite speculative or genre elements um, within it. Um, and I think also sort of effective engagement with social or topical issues, which I, you know, kind of interest or, or vex me. I think the militarization of policing, xenophobia, the notion of polarization and sort of arguing dialectical conceptions of liberal or conservative dystopias. Um, I've left the, the setting, the locations deliberately vague, I think outside of a general setting uh, referred to as a place calling itself America, which is a, my own play on Jaws Osborne's adaptation of Coriolanus, a place calling itself Rome. Um, there are absurdist moments, um, you know, uh, something like many debut novels, it's a lot of things and it's sort of, I don't know what will fit in it and what will work and what may is just kind of getting things on the page and maybe inform other stories or other uh, avenues. But, you know, for example, one of these moments of absurdity is something that came as I was writing it is that the chief executive of the United, the president of the United States is named Andrew Arthur Eldridge, who may or may not be the lead singer of the former lead singer of the Sisters of Mercy. So, um, so there's stuff like that. Um, I've always loved uh, works of shrewd minimalist world building. I think what immediately comes to mind for me is Tom Parada's novel, The Leftovers. Um, I also love the, the TV adaptation, but stories where plot characters and settings are suggested or briefly introduced. And the reader is encouraged to kind of populate the, the novel with, with themselves and their, their imagination. I think horror and genre more broadly, going back to when I was a kid, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit, but um, that's where my heart beats. And those elements for me are all frosting. That's the fun. Um, more fundamentally, it is a horror novel and it is about the things that scare me. Uh, insufficiency, intrusive thoughts, grief as an expression of a particular kind of, of of um, entitlement, I think, particularly for men. I think uh, the idea that we might end up alone, uh, the things that we're potentially capable of that might drive away those people who love us, um, the, the concept of identity, who we are as not being anything intrinsic to us, but rather the ephemera we pick up along the way. So overall, um, I think, and, and connected to that are, 
there's two real touchstones for me when I think back about, you know, influence. I think everything I've ever watched, everything I've ever written, um, every, everything that's happened to me really is an influence in the novel. Everything I've ever written, I should say, everything I've ever read. Um, but the two touchstones for me are John Steinbeck's dedication in Eden East of Eden, where he talks about the novel, the concept of the novel as a box. And in this one, I wanted to put in every petty and ugly thing. And the other that comes to mind is the, the quote from the filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard. Um, it's not blood, it's just red. And for me, my hope is that comeback never can be both. Wow. Sounds a little bit like Brian Evanson. Funny you should say so. I think, you know, I've met Brian. Um, I haven't read much, but I read a few short stories. Uh, when I met him, we had some great conversations about uh, Robert Aikman specifically, because I told him a, a briefly about this, and then as well, uh, John Darneal and his novel Universal Harvester. Um, but no, Brian's great, and I think, yeah, his from what I've heard and from what I have read and hope to read more of, I, I think, yeah, that to uh, that sort of vibe would, would be exactly what I'm going for. So amazing that you, you kind of identified that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really exciting. I'd be very keen to read that when you finish it off. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll keep, yeah, so would I. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it's something, like I said, it's the great pursuit at this point. And, and I feel like I've, kind of come to a place um, as a reader, as a person now in, in my life where I feel a sort of uh, a readiness, like, okay, I can do that. I'm in a place now where this is this is possible as opposed to this is sort of just, as I said, to start maybe a, a place where I go to in my daydreams. It's so nice to have a project you're working on because it is somewhere you can just go to and think about and your free time is living in a different different world yeah yeah absolutely all right let's get on to your gateway book yeah so i think <laughs> not to be cheesy about it i think it's probably plural gateway books uh it's a great question i think um because it's perhaps an obvious point but in, in reflecting about this it, it really shows um i think for most readers it's it's biography it's bibliography or biography is bibliography you know you think about the phases in your life you know you're reflective you're introspective um i think back to my earliest times as a reader which is very much uh thankful to the loving and my loving and supportive family um who very much valued education um and reading in particular uh, especially my grandfather um and that sort of starts with uh a series called great illustrated classics so these were as their title suggests, abridged and illustrated adaptations of canonical works. Um, and my grandpa really used these to kind of teach me how to read. The sort of bedtime story that would be, uh, he'd read a chapter or I'd read a chapter alternating every other night from one of these books. And uh, one of them has persisted into my top 10, the unabridged version. Um, but the one that I'll, I'll cite here is uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. That's one that immediately came to mind when I was thinking about these. So I think a very special memory, a moment of, of real keen nostalgia. Um, and then also, I think in a funny way, the collectability of them, because there were series, probably a hundred of them or something, I think kind of showed that uh, the beginnings, the inklings, um, 
the genesis of the sort of fetishization of book as an object. And I think so many of us, we just have this, this infinite, my whole, most of my collection is a TBR, right? I just, I'm buying books that I'm going to die a, a sort of a, um, an unsatisfied reader because I'm sure there'll be so many things that I haven't gotten to. <laughs> I think in that same time frame. Um, and again, related to my relationship with my grandfather, Hamlet by William Shakespeare. Um, I didn't read it in full until later, but when I was six or seven, my grandpa had me memorize and recite the to be or not to be soliloquy. Um, and there was a, a small book I don't recall now other than it was a kind of a cloth bound red hardcover, a slim volume of sort of collected prose. And that was in there, the, the soliloquy. Um, and that really instilled, I think, a love for Elizabethan language, purple prose in the best way, the, the great abiding dramas and sort of a lifelong um, enjoyment of particularly the tragedies. So Hamlet, the Scottish play, um, and for me, first among equals, uh, uh, Titus Andronicus. <laughs> um, Again, as a child, I think uh, Goosebumps by R.L. Stein was definitely a, a touchstone uh, that's very millennial or elder millennial thing. Memories of the Scholastic Book Fair, um, which was, you know, elementary school or primary school, we would have a little the truck that came by with a collection of books you could purchase. Um, my, my family still has a story that they love to remind me of, which is I had bought one, I believe it was, I can even remember the title. I think it was like the cuckoo strikes at midnight or something. And uh, I bought it that day at school and I left it at my desk. And when I got home and realized I didn't have it and couldn't read it that night, I flipped out. And it was one of the worst tantrums I apparently had ever had. And they love to remind me about that. <laughs> so that I read a lot of that until um, I, in fourth grade, when I was eight years old, old I somehow got my hands on a copy of Salem's Lot by Stephen King and I think this is you know I say somehow got my hands on what most like my my uh, family was very supportive and very libertine and very laissez-faire about the sort of consumption so I don't think they they probably I just probably was at a bookstore and grabbed it and they didn't care but um, I think for an eight-year-old uh, reading this sort of thing, it felt very transgressive. I think it, it plays back to, or it resonates nicely with Stephen King's own discussions about how he based the novel off Peyton Place and how that was his experience being a child and getting his hands on that book and that being a sort of moment of, of transgressive joy. Um, and I think it, it has a particularly personal meaning for me. I, I, well, just real briefly on that point, I think reading those sort of adult themes, you know, the idea of, um, of sort of suburban dissatisfaction, mistrust. Um, I think again, that's sort of the, the more melodramatic aspects were very exciting to me as a child. Um, but I have very definitive memories around that book, um, particularly so uh, my family had moved away from where I grew up and the public schools in my new town, um, my parents didn't like very much. They didn't feel like the quality of the education was up to snuff. So they actually, every week I would, you know, almost every morning would take a train from uh, my new town to my old town, about 45 minutes away where my grandmother still had residency. So I went to elementary school there. So every morning I remember being on the train, traveling along the California coastline as the sun came up 
reading this book. And I think that'll probably be a memory that, that carries with me until I, until I'm, uh, until I die in a, in the best, in a great way. And I think one too, that is another story my family loves telling me about, which is how, um, in parent teacher conferences, the one criticism and the one point where I got in trouble was that I was reading Stephen King books during other subjects. So I, we had our little desks and I had my little cubby, the little, you know, where you keep your pencils and your notebooks. And I just had my desk or my book crammed in there. And while we're going over math, I'm reading, you know, Salem's Lot or The Shining. Kind of getting into the more later life, you know, I went to college and graduate school. And I think that led to a pause, understandably, in my fiction reading. But I do want to talk about some other books I think just were important to touch on briefly. Um, historical monographs. I was a history major. I did my um, undergraduate degree. In, I got my BA in, his, in uh, American history and then my uh, master's in history of medicine. Um, and two books that are directly uh, relevant to those interests would be Battle Cry of Freedom, the Civil War Era by James M. McPherson. And I think for me, that kind of showed me how exciting and fascinating social, political, and economic history can be. Um, and then Racial Hygiene, Medicine Under the Nazis by Robert Proctor. And that was a seminal text for me in my focus on National Socialist Medical Professionals and Coercive Human Subjects Research, which is what I studied in graduate school, wrote my thesis on. And then I was fortunate enough this past summer to publish uh, a peer-reviewed article that I co-authored with my graduate school advisor. Um, yeah, and then finally, other than the two that we'll mention in my top 10, um, arguably by Christopher Hitchens. So when I had gotten out of grad school, I remember, you know, we'll talk about it when I think we get into my top 10, but I, I was feeling a little lost and, you know, I decided to not do my PhD. And um, I saw this bright yellow spine um, uh, uh, and cr arguably by Christopher Hitchens and he's his glaring face on the cover. And I just picked it up. I don't know what attracted to me it specifically, but you know, I think uh, despite some of his broader misfires, you know, around a rock or the thing about men being intrinsically funnier than women, Hitch had a real love of, and any reader of, of Hitch will tell you, you the lo his love for fiction was palpable and, uh, and history. And he had that unparalleled linguistic verve. Um, and I think his admirations infected me in the best way. You know, I, he's an infamous atheist, but I think that um, he, I think he would have agreed with this statement that if anything in, in human life flirted with the numinous, it would be, it would be fiction. It would be literature. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Ryan Alexander. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Play, the new place for your toddler to learn, have fun, and share all of their data. Facebook, fucking people up since 2004. We're back on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Ryan Alexander. Let's get on to your TBR, which I know is massive. <laughs> that's that's the word for it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's the current reads and the TBR. Um, so I just finished with Full Mania. Um, and and uh, so in terms of what I'm reading currently, uh, 
unsurprisingly, The Rifles by William P. Bowman. So I had intended to read a bunch of shorter novels, disparate works prior to the tunnel group read. I closed the third, you know, page 1356 in the dying grass. I've just had three months of reading Volman. I'm going to broaden my broaden out a bit. And within an hour, my eye was already drifting back to my Volman <laughs> shelf. And I went, well, the rifles, it's one of the seven dreams. And it's, it's quite short. I could do that. Um, so again, this is volume six of the seven dreams, um, a book of North American landscapes. These are for those who may not be aware episodes of apocal destructive encounters between indigenous people and colonizing forces. Um, this entry in particular details both the ill-fated Franklin expedition to chart the Northwest Passage, which people may be familiar with through Dan Simmons' novel and the TV series, uh, The Terror, um, as well as Volman's own likely fictional romance with uh, Ripa, an indigenous woman, during his efforts to write the book itself and detail the relocation and the cultural and material immiseration uh, uh, of the Inuit peoples by the Canadian government. And I'm particularly fascinated as I'm reading, I'm only about 150, 200 pages into it, uh, by the metafictional elements. Volman introduces yet another fictive doppelganger in the style of the author or William the Blind. Here it's um, Captain Sub-Zero, who is also the reincarnation of the deceased Sir John Franklin. So it's a book that I would rec recommend so far both to longtime readers as, as well as to people who are sort of asking that perennial question we talked about earlier, where should I start with Bowman? I also am in the early pages of um, On the Natural History of Destruction by W.G. Sebald and translated by Anthea Bell. Um, so this is a posthumously published collection of lectures um, on the state of German fiction in the immediate post-war era. Um, I think the eponymous entry is probably the most incisive and illuminating. I'm in, I think, the second or third lecture right now, on which is a little more, um, not not as uh, sort of a, immediately exciting as, as the first. But like Volman, I was sort of immediately struck with that sense of excitement, that electricity, that quickening that you feel when you read someone and you know this is something special. Um, and I think it offers a thesis sort of, and this is something that I understand is sort of throughout Sebald's um, bibliography or later uh, fictional works, but about the willful and unconscious misremembering of German suffering and uh, with regard to specifically to allied firebombing of German cities. And that's a thesis that I think in lesser hands would be unsuccessful. Um, but I think here he's, he's getting at something, um, what is remembered, what is unremembered that I think is, is essential. And I've just started <laughs> Dune by Frank Herbert, um, obviously motivated by Denis Villeneuve's superb adaptation, which I'd highly recommend people watch. I think on the surface, it's the call to action, the hero's journey that makes it so readable. Um, I read 50 pages in just a sitting, which is very unique for me. Um, but I think it's the underlying deconstruction of those modalities and specifically the admonition against the cult of personality, the messianic impulse uh, that makes it so enduring. And that's not to speak of um, sort of his broader, Herbert's broader facility with so many fields of study, uh, political science, religious studies, anthropology, ecology, et cetera. I think looking ahead, um, 
The Aesthetics of Resistance, Volumes 1 and 2 by Peter Weiss, translated by Joachim Neugroschel and Joel Scott. Um, this is Peter Weiss's magnum opus regarding the German anti-fascist resistance during the, the National Socialist times. And it's a Weltanschauung, its worldview is developed and articulated through artistic expression, specifically painting and sculpture. Um, it was championed, I think, by most recently by novelist and critic Ryan Ruby, um, who's very active on Twitter. And I'd highly recommend his recent piece published in The Point magazine. Um, and then in terms of immediate TBR, although there's a long-term TBR, um, when we cease to understand the world by Benjamin Labatut, and I apologize if I've mispronounced that or any of the names I'm going to mention because many of these are translated works by, uh, this is translated by Adrian Nathan West. And this has sort of been the recent social media darling. I'm sure you've seen it all over Twitter and Instagram as well. And everyone's raving about it. And as I understand it, it's about a series of encounters within this sort of scientific intellectual history um, and I think for me personally, grabbing it off the shelf and reading that first page, which details Hermann Goering and his opiate withdrawal during the, the NMT or the IMT, the Nuremberg Military Tribunal, uh, made it an immediate purchase. And I really hope it lives up to the hype. Um, I think so. Those are what I want to read by the end of the year. Then there's looking, for, I think, like all of us, you know, I love thinking ahead and putting together my shelf of you know, what I intend to read, but I totally will not get to. I'm an incredibly slow reader. Although many of these books are are much shorter than, than what I would have been reading, but um, I, I, I have so much fun doing that. Um, so this is a, um, these are the works that I hope to get to in 2022. There's a real focus though, not exclusively on fiction and translation and varieties of experience um, before, during and after World War II. Um, and extending beyond the German-speaking countries, which were a real focus for me. Um, so, you know, as they say, a plan is just a list of things that don't happen. <laughs> so the first book would be The Books of Jacob by Olga Tokarczuk and translated by Jennifer L. Croft. Um, so this is just very briefly... Um, a, a book of a historical novel about uh, Jakob Frank and sort of various uh, sort of um, schisms within organized Jewish and Christian religions in primarily in Poland uh, during the, the 18th century. Uh, very much. Like, and, and I think for me, it's it's something that I'm always interested in, which is a, a female authored uh, maximalist novel, which you know we don't see many of and we can see more of. Um, someone who I'm very recently excited by that I think you'll be familiar with Gerald Murnane. Mm -hmm. So several of his works, The Plains, Inland, A Million Windows, and Border Districts, um, all fairly short works. I, I read um, the first 10 pages of A Million Windows, and I was hooked. Um, and I think what he's doing, you know, again, that idea of deconstruction and kind of, uh, again, just taking taking language apart at the sentence level and really uh, encouraging demanding um, circumspection about who we are as readers and what what are those expectations and assumptions that we bring to a text i think for me in the best ways reminded me of joseph mcelroy and uh, christina rivera garza um 
very excited to get to uh, the translated works of Dasha Drindich, so Doppelganger, Leica Format, Trieste, and Belladonna, translated by S.D. Curtis, Celia Hawksworth, and Ellen Elias Bursach. Um, so again, I think similar to Sebald in a sort of, um, what I believe some have referred to as documentary history. So these are um, somewhat fictive, although there's a fair bit of creative nonfiction maybe within there, uh, again, dealing with uh, both the the, tra the trauma, energy, both at the in the moment and inter intergenerational trauma around the Second World War, specifically here um, in the um, in the Balkan context writ large. I think uh, I mentioned Sebald, so again, Vertigo, The Immigrants, The Rings of Saturn, and Austerlitz, again translated by Michael Holson and Thea Bell. Um, I kind of talked about Sebald just a mo few moments ago. Uh, two novels by Ladislav Fuchs, Mr. Theodore Moonstock and the Cremator, uh, translated by Iris Unwin or Irwin, I, I apologize, and Eva M. Candler. Um, Here in our Auschwitz and other stories by Tadeusz Borowicki, translated by Madeline Levine. Um, so again, more World War II centric works. Um, so another author project would be Krasna Horkai. Um, and his sort of uh, quartet, as, as I think he refers to them. So Satan Tango, The Melancholy of Resistance, War and War, and Baron Van Kimes Homecoming. And those are translated by George Certes and Otelie Molzet. Um, he's, he's someone that I've just, again, heard so much about. Um, the maximalism, the disconnection, the dislocation, the long looping sentences. I, I'm very excited, you know, and, and I think with the publication of Baron Van Kimes, he refers to sort of the four novels I just mentioned as sort of being one long novel. And that's kind of been my approach to many of the, I've, I've rattled off a lot of names here and a lot of works in, in sequence. And that's, you know, I think me as a reader, I tend to uh, favor the longer maximalist works. This whole year has been a thousand page books. So I think focusing on several books together as one, I, I, there's something about it that appeals to me. Um, I'll just read a few more. I don't want to take up too much of our time with this, but uh, Like a Tear in the Ocean, Volumes 1 through 3 by Manish Sperber, translated by Constantine Fitzgibbon. So this is uh, a book that I came across in a footnote um, in William T. Volman's afterward to Danilo Kees' A Tomb for Boris Davidovich. And he describes it as sort of a series of... of um, an investigation of, of the, the convolutions and involutions, I believe he says, of uh, communists during the Second World War. So the idea of, of um, I think, uh, not, not, they're not, well, the idea of being uh, centered between, on the one hand, National Socialism, on the other hand, Stalinist communism, and and again, the, the varieties of experience and, and um, oppression and uh, discomfort that one would feel there, I think, particularly with the latter with, with Soviet communism for the part of, of European socialists. Um, I think I'll just talk about a few more. Uh, the Book of Blam, The Use of Man and Capo by Alexander Tizma, translated by Michael Henry Heim, Baron Johnson, and Richard Williams. Um, again, this is more to focus on um, uh, the Balkans, Serbia, Croatia, uh, et cetera. Um, and I apologize if I'm, I'm speaking out of ignorance and sort of the geographical complexities and nuances of that area of the world. Um, but I think, you know, again, he's talking about 
um, the impact of, of the Second World War there and, and in very interesting ways, particularly with regard to uh, post-war memory. Uh, similarly, Kin by Milenko Yurgovich, translated by Russell Scott Valentino. This is another Twitter darling. I think I've seen um, many people talking about looks incredible. And I think, again, deals very similarly in, in the Croatian context with uh, sort of history and uh, how that is um, a particular type of, of hidden but countenance trauma for families living uh, in the post-war era. And then again, within that uh, national space with the war in the 90s being, you know, that's that's a very um, complex topic. And then um, just uh, this Bernhard, Thomas Bernhardt is another author that I'm hoping to get to. He has so many works, um, the great Austrian novelist and playwright and essayist and um, short story writer, if I'm not mistaken. I'm very excited to get to some of his works. And then always up there, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pinchon. What better uh, what better podcast to talk about that on than Beyond the Zero? Um, and then some works by Joseph McElroy I'd love to get back to. Um, Lookout Cartridge, I think specifically um, being one that that is highly recommended and, and I think many refer to as sort of his masterwork. I think that is my favorite Joseph McElroy that I've read. Mm -hmm. That's what I hear. That's what I often hear. Um, you know, the women and men, I think, is referred to as his magnum opus. I think perhaps sort of as a knee jerk, given its page count and its scarcity. But I think for people who have actually read um, McElroy, I think yourself, as you just mentioned, Ben Shore, um, others, uh, which is a great resource. I'll just shout out Ben Shore and his um, Bookshore channel because he's he's reviewed almost every single uh, McElroy work. Uh, he's also referred to uh, Lookout Cartridge as, as the best. We'll take a quick break here and we'll come back with Ryan's top 10. Do you spend too much time on social media when you could be spending time with your family or writing that novel? Here at GetCancelled.com we can help. We can personalize a media strategy guaranteed to get you cancelled. Use the promo code your first month free get cancelled.com we're back on beyond zero it's time to hear ryan's top 10 um so number 10 women and men by joseph mcelroy so this is really the white whale of postmodern Max, of the postmodern maximalist canon, I think, as we all know. Um, I had heard about it for years. I think um, probably the most uh, definite source I can locate um, in terms of my knowledge of the book would be Garth Riskalberg's essay, The Lost Postmodernist in the LA Times. And I did want to shout out and give thanks to Zank Books, as they've done just an incredible service to readers by bringing so many of Joseph McElroy's books back into print in multiple editions. So, um, you know, in addition to Women and Men, in various editions, we have Preparations for Search, Lookout Cartridge, and then just most recently, I think about a month ago, Heinz Kidnap. Um, so just by way of plot, very quickly, um, for those who may not know, um, insofar as plot is, is at all illuminating for a book of this nature, you know, there's the protagonist, Jim Main and Grace Kimball, the meet cute that never happens, as I believe Adam Dalva referred to it. Um, slice of life vignettes in 1970s New York City. 
uh, particularly for me, a resonant portraiture of a son's, son's grieving for a lost parent, uh, fantastical, fabulistic acid western, a, a speculative fugue on colloidally enjoined female men pairings transported from across space to galactic space farms, a uh, political thriller involving a South, South American political interests and, um, and, and then the breathers, the, that's what they're referred to as sort of omniscient, omnipresent celestial narration. I think as George discussed in your previous episode, um, I feel about a third of the novel, some 1200 pages in total, stumbles into sort of an iterative malaise sounds like maybe that was your experience with it too ben um i think particularly for me with regard to the mythological allegory about the the sort of um revisionist indigenous fable about the far eastern princess of chore uh, additionally mcelroy as he, and he's admitted as much uh kind of held a personal grievance with second wave feminism that manifests in the novel as a sort of a reductive, lazy misogyny. Um, those failures aside, the remaining 800 pages just for me might be the novel of the 20th century. Um, it, it, it literally retaught me how to read, um, particularly with those breathers. I feel like the, the syntax, the language, the voice, the location of everything challenges how you've approached reading um, from from the earliest ages. And I think, um, again, the cognitive restructuring of the prose, particularly within the breathers, located a kind of poetic and emotional frequency that I don't believe I've encountered in any other kind of fiction. And that's, that's why it's on this list. Um, in terms of difficulty, you know, I would encourage really anyone to pick it up and try it. Um, and I I think, again, in terms of challenging assumptions, what was helpful for me and what I thought about more as I read it is my relation to art, um, specifically fiction versus other media, uh, music and painting. You know, you listen to a song, you read a poem, and you uh, look at a painting, and these are all, in a sense, more abstract, or at least not uh, structured in, in terms of narrative. So you don't I feel like you don't often come out of those uh, experiences and say, okay, well, what exactly happened there? You just experience it and hopefully it, it, uh, it, it resonates with you on some level. And that tying it back into the earliest reading, the Halberg essay, as he puts it, such dismissals proceed from the misbegotten idea that our job is to decode novels rather than to immerse ourselves in them. I think that's a great way to, to approach it. Number nine would be The Doll's Alphabet by Camilla Grudova. Um, Camilla Grudova is a Canadian writer and this is her short story collection. I had pulled this off the shelf at random. I don't recall why exactly from another local indie, the very famous politics and prose here in Washington, DC. And I just was captivated. I felt like I had read nothing like it. Um, when I was writing a review of it, I referred to its dread resplendence. You know, it's magic. It's magically realist. It's a dystopian fantastique. Um, it has the gloom and whimsy of fairy tales, uh, gothic squalor, vaudevillian bombast. It very much is in conversation with the omnipresence of gender, um, expression, dynamics, and violence. Um, and I think very much 
centered on feminist experience um, of, of those topics, but it also, interestingly and importantly, uh, I think identifies a space for men, a necessary space for men in, in those conversations and in the, you know, um, in terms of individual action structurally. Um, it shows traditional gender roles in institutions as binding and corrosive, but yet there's there are fleeting moments um, in which romantic relationships in particular are shown as opportunities to expand and enrich in our inner lives. Um, and I think, you know, the, the importance of, of those type of um, desires in a, in a world that's, that's absent of in large part, but in certain instances defined by dangerous intimacies. And if I were going to sell it to anyone in terms of a blurb, one sentence I could tell you to pick up this book, um, I would say that Camilla Grudova writes as if she's sort of the bastard daughter of Franz Kafka and Shirley Jackson, and that raised by her uncle Tom Waits is kind of how I think about it. Number eight is How to Quiet a Vampire by Borislav Pechik, translated by Stephen M. Dickey and Bogdan Rachik. So this is a novel that takes the form of 26 letters and two postscripts um, each sort of based within a school of philosophical uh, or intellectual or, or a school of, of philosophical or intellectual tradition. tradition. Um, and they are written, quote unquote, um, by Konrad Rutkowski, who is a former Gestapo officer who has returned to Dubrovnik, um, where he was stationed during the war um, on vacation. And the novel excavates his declining mental state via a series of recalled dialectics with his superior Steinbrecher, as well as the possibly supernatural return of one of his victims, a Croatian file clerk named Adam Trubkovich, who is wielding an umbrella that just might be Satan. So, um, I think that it's dealing with history in terms of both the personal and the collective, as so many of the books I've talked about earlier, particularly my TBR, have touched upon. Um, and I think two, two very brief quotes sort of illustrate um, these points to me. I'll read them now. So here I am in the pit of history. We believe that it had been dug for others. And then the eponymous line, Tomorrow is what makes me human. Yesterday is what makes me a corpse. The mistake was reviving something I should have taken long ago and buried forever. Our problem is not how to revive, but how to quiet our vampires. The past is a vampire, and the real question is how to quiet it forever. Similarly, my number seven choice is, um, and I don't think any surprise to anyone who's followed my account for some time, uh, the Kindly Ones by Jonathan Littell, translated by Charlotte Mandel. These are the fictive memoirs of a former SS officer, Dr. Maximilian Awa, as he relates his life history, which includes his service on the Eastern Front uh, with the Einsatzgruppen mobile killing units, as well as in combat at Stalingrad within the concentration camp complex and during the fall of Berlin. It's, it's sort of a, a national socialist picaresque um, for me, it is the preeminent fictive meditation on genocidal ambition, 
I think the first section in particular, uh, it's called Tokata. It's during Awa's time with the, the mobile killing units in occupied Poland and Ukraine. Deftly weaves characterization, dialogue, action with the historical understandings of what's referred to in the scholarship as structuralism. Um, so the improvisational ground level interpersonal dynamics, interorganizational competition that drove the evolution of genocide toward what uh, was termed the the Endlosung der Judenfrage, the, the final solution of the Jewish question. I think the book is often criticized for some unfair reasons, paratextual reasons, the page count, uh, Latell's advance, and then some more um, substantive reasons, I think, the characterization of Awa, specifically uh, his uh, personal deviances, uh, most notably incest, I think in light of the historical record, um, most perpetrators can be situated within Browning's ordinary men thesis. And, and that's, um, that's a strong argument, I'd say, but I do think that Latell is, is positing that Awa's sexual appetites are uh, like his motivations as a perpetrator, petty grievance, sexual, or sorry, social mobility and a desire for meaning and purpose are more prosaic than we'd like to admit. Number six, Beloved by Toni Morrison. For me, uh, it's the most successful horror novel ever written. Um, and I apologize if that sounds dismissive or flippant. I, I don't mean it to be. Uh, for me, genre taxonomies, uh, if they do exist, are never pejorative. And after all, it is on its first page, as any reader will see, as a ghost story. Moreover, what subject could be more offensive to the, to the moral sense? Um, I doubt there's ever likely to be a more emotionally resonant, aesthetically accomplished, or historically sound depiction of um, the obscenities of antebellum patriarchal slavery or the suffering of the 60 million and more, as she refers to them. I think for me, one of the discrete scenes that, that has stuck with me since I read it several years ago was Paul D's memory of Mr. The plantation rooster and his vibrant savage red wattle um, and the, the associated imagery of Paul needing to bury his pain within the, the tobacco tin of his heart. The idea, again, of what is remembered and buried, spoken and unsaid. The book is so much about feminine experience and suffering, um, rightly so, but it goes to show Morrison's absolute mastery of her craft and of human empathy in that she has created for me, I think, a moment of, of masculine torment uh, par excellence. And um, very briefly and similarly, another line that has stuck with me is um, one character's admonition to Sethi, which is don't love nothing. Number five is Wolf in White Van by John Darneal. Um, and this novel is about Sean Phillips, who is drawn into a legal dispute by the parents of two children harmed when in real life they enact moves taken by their characters in Sean's play-by-mail RPG, Trace Italian. The plot is really the sinecure around which Sean uh, examines the long-term impact of trauma and grotesque, the grotesquerie of his adolescent fantasies. Um, as I mentioned, I think I, I mentioned John Darniel earlier. He's a novelist. He's also uh, the, the mu a musician behind The Mountain Goats. Um, I don't like to compare art forms directly, usually, 
Um, but you know, particularly songwriting and prose writing, but I feel like so many of the sentences just shimmer. They're absolutely golden. And I can't help but believe that 30 years of operating in the medium of music contributed to that success. Um, not to mention, uh, Darniel's been quite open about his formative reading of genre novels. He's a real partisan for Robert Aikman and uh, formal training in poetry. Uh, this, you know, in addition to the prose, the style of it, the characters, um, I was really convinced of Sean's flawed but inherent goodness, um, a remarkably kind and self-reflexive person who, in his words, did something terrible once. Um, and I, I, it's the novel told in reverse chronological order and leads to a particular crescendo that um, for me was one of the most, I don't want to spoil it for anyone um, who does believe in spoilers, but um, it's among the most terrifying images I've ever encountered in fiction. And I literally, and I physically hesitated before reading that final chapter. Number four is Ice by Anna Kavan. Um, so this is a novel in which an unnamed narrator pursues his unrequited love across a world facing inexorable apocalyptic winter. Um, he has a bipolar enmity and fraternity with a, uh, her current paramour captor referred to uh, appropriately as the warden who just might be the narrator himself. Um, there's sort of fickle allegiances to increasingly Kafkaesque and anachronistic governance that he's encountering. Um, I think discussion tends to focus on the allegorical implications of the novel, um, environmental collapse, male entitlement, the oppression of women, substance abuse, mental illness, existential dissatisfaction. But all of that, while, while fascinating, really obscures Kavan's brilliance as a stylist. Her prose is intensely personal um, and its chief strength being her ability to instill within the reader the narrator's constant dysphoria in time, place, and identity. Uh, it's, for me, I, I described it as a portrait of the metastatic self. Uh, it's just really about the narrator's inability to establish uh, sufficient or even discernible boundaries. And I think the warp and weft of, of all of these elements really contribute. It's, it's a really overused term and one I don't like to use, but it really makes the novel uh, a, a liminal space and one that um, to, to take a line from the novel itself, vaguely familiar, a distortion of something half remembered. And for all its horror, uh, it's a novel that in me evoked uh, both wonder and awe. Number three, um, Rising Up and Rising Down, volume one, three meditations on death the Death of the Nibblums, Definitions for Lonely Atoms by William T. Volman. And I'll just uh, briefly quote the opening sentence, which gives you an idea as to the scope of the project. Death is ordinary, behold it, subtract its patterns and lessons from those of the death that weapons bring, and maybe the residue will show what violence is. So this is Volman's seven volume 3000 word essay on historical manifestations of violence and his personal investigation as to whether it can ever be employed ethically. Um, it's the first, I didn't want to be cheesy and just say my top 10, here's the whole seven book series. Um, it's the first and only volume I've read. Um, and though it stands at 
what is almost the midpoint of this of his bibliography. Um, it's really the culmination of so much: his topical interests, his stylistic novelty, his reportage, his meta meta and auto fictional pursuits, the breadth of his reading. So for me, it really seems to be the capstone of his thesis, which he he I think referred to very uh, succinctly in an interview with Michael Silverblatt, which is that the um, material residue of human history is bloodstains. Uh, just a brief funny story about the book. I had started reading it um, or thinking about getting it. You know, it's it's very difficult to acquire, although fortunately um, McSweeney's I've heard is is coming out with an ebook version. Um, perhaps next year, this would be, I think, a necessary move on their part for everyone. Everyone would benefit. Um, but a local university library had a copy. And I remember in January 2020, um, going on a Friday night after work to um, just read it and sit in, I remember sitting in the library for four or five hours just reading the the not, or the book itself and just having that feeling that I imagine you know again a novitiate and a monastic order must have felt when they're first given access to, to illuminated text this is something there's an exclusivity that's part of it but there's also this is something again um, very singular and and then being very fortunate in that I had visited a local used bookstore just on my normal route on the weekend, just visiting um, some bookshops in the city. And out of the corner of my eye, I see it. And I think, oh, that's, and I went and looked at it and I saw it was only $250, which very often go, the full set goes for a thousand. So I immediately grabbed it and then felt like I, you know, while I'm standing in line at the checkout counter, I feel I'm like, feel like I'm, I'm, committing a crime like somehow that I'm, I'm bamboozling or getting one over on um on the on the the bookstore itself but no they were they're very happy so and so was i so my final two are both gateway books um and and i'm not sure how much i have to say that can contribute to understanding and conversation so much has already been said but i can talk a little bit about what they mean to me uh, number two is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Um, I think like so many readers, this is um, a, uh, uh, a predictable pick perhaps, but one that I feel in talking about the book, I can't help but talk about myself. Um, so I had gotten out of grad school. Uh, it was a rather low point for me. Uh, I had decided not to pursue a PhD um, there are several reasons behind that. I think practical, um, you know, in terms of the, the academic job market being really unsustainable. And in terms of uh, personally, in terms of mental health reasons, just the anxiety of, of that sort of situation was, wasn't doing me any favors. I had gotten out of a, a relationship um, and I found this book. And, you know, for me, it was both a lighthouse and a light life raft. Um, it was in an entire world that I could lose myself in. Um, and then I think equally or perhaps more important than the, that sort of distractive element was it, it you know, that, that the capaciousness of the novel, the expansiveness of the novel was um, this idea that I was reading someone who was talking about loneliness and talking about unhappiness in a way that I felt I had experienced and was experiencing. 
Um, you know, I think I believe it was Kazuo Ishiguro who talked about fiction as being a mirror and saying, you know, a book says this is how it feels for me. Did it feel this way for you? And and that's what the novel did for me. Um, and and so it's very it's very close to, to me um, and my heart. And I'm sorry that it's kind of been well, it's it's fairly maligned for substantive reasons. Um, you know, I think chief among them being the very uh, risible uh, racist uh, portions where he, I don't even want to refer to it as AAVE, American, African-American vernacular English, because that's what it's not. It's a racist caricature of it. Um, but there's those sections that absolutely do not work. But in spite of those failures, I still feel like it's, it's a substantive, uh, valuable uh, essential work, and I think that the the endurance of it and the um, the reader connection with it uh, that has been sustained uh, uh, demonstrates that. Um, and then number one, Moby Dick or the Whale by Herman Melville. I, again, not much I can add to this one. Um, it's 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 part of the canon, and rightly so. Um, but I do think it has achieved the limits of what can be done with the novel as a form. It employs and perfects the scope, techniques, and resonance of everything written before and after. The exception uh, there might be Ulysses, which I haven't read. And as I've mentioned, about two-thirds of women and men. <laughs> um, it contains a complete consciousness between the covers. I think uh, a complete culture, a complete history a complete world. Um, everything that it's doing, uh, the, the varieties of tone, the varieties of styles, um, the both on a very surface level in terms of the, the adventure of, you know, the high seas adventure to its grappling with um, existential and ontological um, concepts, you know, the whiteness of the whale, um, a, a dumb blankness full of meaning. I believe he refers to it at one point. Um, it's a novel that I, I've reread several times, which is not something I'm, I'm apt to do given there's so much I want to read, but it's one I return to, to I've returned to two or three times and then we'll continue to do so. And I think every single time uh, get something new out of it. I'm surprised by it. I feel like I'm reading a different book. I'm actually surprised by your list. So quite a few things on there I didn't expect, but great list. Huh? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that as well. And I hope that um, listeners maybe maybe hear some some books in there that that interest them and they may they might pick up. Hmm. Well, before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm on Instagram at the Republic of Bad Taste. I am on Twitter at a slightly different handle due to character limits. Ryan has bad taste. And then you can find um, the Volmania podcast at uh, simply Volmania, both on Twitter and Instagram. I'm very lucky to be able to grab the same handle on both platforms. I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's such an exciting project and I wish you a lot of success with it. Thank you so much. And, and uh, just before we go, thank you so much for your invitation. I had a blast talking today um, and I, I hope to continue to listen and, and hear more about uh, what others are reading and what, what uh, books were important to them. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was great chatting. <laughs> thank you.
Thanks once again to Ryan Alexander. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.